out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were Afraid. This is the reading of God's holy word. And here God shows us something. Something that's probably obvious maybe to everyone in this room. That the resurrection either did happen or didn't. That this is not being presented to us as myth. This is not being presented to us as something which we have the option of believing, the option of doubting. This isn't presented as something of, this is the way you should live your life, at least not here in this text. What we are presented with is the historical fact of the resurrection. And Mark here actually doesn't get into what the New Testament later will get into, which is the significance of it all. And we won't just gloss over that this morning. But Mark's main point here is to convince you of the fact of the resurrection. That it happened in time and space. That, just as 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17 says, that if Christ was not raised, if you want to know the significance, then your faith, futile worthless, you might as well be somewhere else this morning. And more significantly, if that was possible, you are still in your sins. The fact of God's wrath upon humanity is something that's self-evident. It's something that should speak to us, the fact that whenever we know a loved one who dies, or who has disease, or if you experience age, these are the signs to us of God that we live in a fallen world. And aren't we so glad that God surprised humanity with the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And that's kind of the thing that 
I could not stop looking away from throughout this entire text. There's so many surprising incidents. incidents surprises that caught me off guard. That spoke to the fact that the reality of the resurrection is what's made, made the focal point. The first step, if we are going to just step back in time for just a moment, is the fact that we see this surprise by boldness with Joseph of Arimathea. That after Jesus dies, first, everyone in this story, by the way, realizes that Jesus is dead. That Mark even uses the word for a corpse to reference the dead body of Jesus. And there's no one at any point in this story that was expecting the resurrection. That's why Joseph come here boldly asking for the body of Jesus. He's not asking so that he can see him raised from the dead. He's asking so that he might prepare his body for an honorable burial. It's the thing that the women see from a distance that Jesus died. And even when they come with spices of their own, they're coming to honor Jesus in his death. Pilate also does not expect a resurrection. And I think this is key in looking at all this because, you know, I actually like surprising people. Really, if you were to ask some people that I surprise, I like scaring people. And what I really enjoy about scaring people is the shock of it all. And here's a heads up. If you want to scare someone or shock someone, there's only really one key ingredient in it. That it's unexpected. That you do it shockingly, surprisingly. That it's unexpected. That's the point. (laughs) It's unexpected. And what we see here is this very first moment. It's the most surprising thing maybe about Joseph's burial and going through all this. Is the fact of when he chooses to step forward. This man, unexpectedly is a respectable member of the Sanhedrin. We were told that the whole council condemned him to death. We're told by Luke that he did not put his vote forward. And John and Matthew help explain that to say that he was a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're going to be a secret disciple of Jesus, why does he choose this moment? Isn't it kind of odd if you're going to follow Jesus? Wouldn't you follow Jesus at the triumphal entry when he's being praised by the crowds? But Joseph chooses this moment when he's seen the sin, when they've executed an innocent man who he did not cast his vote for. And as a rich man and as a respected man, he uses his position to honor Jesus. To honor his death. See, what usually happened with executed treasonous criminals is they would take him down from the cross and throw him into the garbage pile. That's what happened with prisoners. But God so orchestrated this situation 
to fulfill Isaiah 53, verse 9, that he who was counted among the wicked, that his grave was among the rich. It is not Joseph's idea at the last second that he decides to work up the courage. I think always when we're looking at history, we're seeing God's story unfold. God's purposes come to pass. But we don't need to take away from Joseph's actual boldness. He was putting himself in danger. Many times we're told in the other Gospels that for fear of the Jews, people would not speak up and proclaim that they believed that Jesus was the Christ. And there's a reality here that we need to focus on. There is a point in time in which we have to make a choice. Either we are going to be a secret disciple, or, or rather, either secrecy will destroy our discipleship, or discipleship will destroy our secrecy. What we see in Joseph of Arimathea is he does take this leap. He takes this risk to his reputation, to his life. And he goes to Pilate and asks for a criminal's body to give him an honorable burial. Using his own funds, his own money. And he does this at the oddest timing and fulfillment of God's plan. There's a point at which... If we're going to have salvation and possess it for ourselves, it does require of us an open, public profession of our faith. You know, it wasn't enough for Joseph to just believe hypothetically that Jesus was Lord. Hypothetically that he is worthy of being followed. True faith expressed itself in his coming forward, being made public. We're told in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he points to Scripture. And this is how all of Scripture has worked, or really, throughout all of redemptive history. For Romans 10, verse 13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's not too much risk, though, in America for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Identifying yourself as a Christian. But I think if you are like me, you probably might have this same complex. You might be a secret disciple at work. Where you are respected as a good employee, as a good boss, as an honorable man who does his job well with excellence. Who maybe loves and follows God in the abstract, some God. Maybe your integrity stands up for you and you seek to make a difference. But you don't actually say 
that you're a Christian. You don't actually speak up at work. You don't actually tell people the only hope that they have of salvation, which is to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We can choose to be an open disciple. You know, if I was going to have my way, it seems to make it easier for me if I could just wear some sort of Christian t-shirt out in public, sitting at the coffee shop, and let other people come to me. But the reality is, there is a moment in which push comes to shove, and you have to make a choice. Will you publicly identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, or will you not? And that work is not your own. It's not a faith you can boast at. But if we look back at our own life, we see that that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart that produces that boldness, that causes us to reach out in faith. The Bible doesn't tell us to wear Christian symbolism, Christian t-shirts, when we publicly identify with Christ. It's actually a lot more simple than that. It's that we profess, we confess that Jesus is Lord, that he's our only hope in life and death. But Joseph's not the only surprised one. Really, Pilate is even surprised. He's surprised that Jesus died so early. So I could have had a, you know, a fifth surprisal there, but that seemed like too many. Four seemed enough. I'd rather focus on the surprised witnesses, the surprising witnesses. When we read the gospel, sometimes we just need to think, why are certain facts in and why are other facts left out? And how does this contribute to us believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Verse 40 Mark introduces us to a fact that if you read Luke's gospel, you'd be well aware of. That Jesus had many, not just male disciples, but female disciples. That if you're envisioning in your mind that Jesus' band of 12 were isolated in the wilderness and food just somehow just appeared to them, that you'd be mistaken. That they had, and it says verse 41, that these women... When he was in Galilee, that is Jesus, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And Mark just names three of them. Three witnesses. He makes women, he points out here that women were instrumental in following him and ministering to him. He points out that there's three in particular who witnessed all the events They're the ones who witnessed Jesus' death on the cross. They witnessed his brutal execution. They witnessed Joseph taking his body to a specific tomb. They witnessed where he was laid so that they might honor him later. You know, if you're trying to invent a story, which is what a lot of people think Christianity is, a story that was invented after the fact, maybe a hundred, couple hundred years later, just to make themselves feel good, creating a new religion, maybe to dominate some people group or another. But you know, it's one thing you wouldn't do 
if you were inventing a religion in the first century, or really for the first thousand years, from 0 AD to 1000 AD, you wouldn't say that the primary witnesses to all these events were women. That might sound offensive to you, but realize that the sensibilities that God's word in recording this, it's not playing to anyone's sensibilities. It's giving us the truth of what happened. What Mark posits for us and lays out before us is that the primary witnesses to all these events were women whose own eyewitness accounts would not count in a court proceeding. The eyewitness evidence of females did not count in court. It was inadmissible evidence. It was old wives' tales and whatever other stereotype you want to apply to it. By the way, that's those, that society's understanding of who women were and seeing their position in society. But it's not the Bibles. It's not scriptures. If you were inventing this story, you would not choose these eyewitnesses. But the fact that they were eyewitnesses is incredibly important. I think the last time I said this was Easter Sunday for the service. It might have been the pre-Easter service, I'm not sure. But there's a quote by Vody Bauckham that's incredible, I think, about why we believe the Bible. He said, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. I know that was a lot. The main point's there. That we believe the Bible because it's true. That the Bible is the word of God. But it's also a reliable document. A reliable historical document. That gives us the record of eyewitnesses who actually saw the events. And that they were seen and interacted by other eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians 15 again. When Paul says that of first importance is that Jesus died according to the scriptures and rose again according to the scriptures, his next list for the next seven verses is about how he appeared to Peter and to 500 other witnesses and last of all to Paul himself. The fact that Jesus died and rose again is not something that we can just be doubtful about. It's not something which we're given the option. This isn't a spiritualized event that didn't really happen that has more of a moral significance for us. The resurrection has implications for how we live. But it's grounded in reality. And that's why we ultimately believe it. You see, if you would have came up to an early Christian in the first century... And you would have asked them, why are you a Christian? What would they have said to you? Would they have said that it's a philosophical system which makes sense of all reality? 
Christianity does. That's a good reason. Would they have, what else would they have said? They would have said the most obvious and simple thing ever. They would say, well, he rose again from the dead. It happened. He's alive. And the risen Lord Jesus is the man whom I serve, the God-man whom I serve with my all. And these surprising witnesses love Jesus. And they add to Joseph's spice. Joseph spent his money, and we're told in the Gospel of John that he spent a hundred pounds of spices to embalm Jesus. And this isn't the type of embalming that the Egyptians did that was meant to preserve the body from decay. The reason why they use spices here is because a corpse begins to smell pretty quickly. And how you honor the dead is you try to mitigate that smell. And Joseph poured so much of his money into that. He gave his brand new tomb, which also has prophetic significance. He used his brand new tomb. And he used a couple, maybe probably 4,000 pound rock to seal it shut. And these women also want to honor Jesus. They also don't think that he's going to rise from the dead, so they bring spices to not preserve the corpse, but to cover up its smell, because now we're three days later, and they come up to the tomb. And they ask a question. Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? How realistic is this? If you are telling a real history, despite the fact that Jesus predicted his death three different occasions and probably a lot more, if you are crafting a story, would you craft a story in which people are so brokenhearted that they go to the tomb wanting to honor Jesus and then lament the fact that they don't even know how they're going to get in there to honor Jesus? No one expecting the resurrection. No one thinking that it could happen. But then we're met with our third surprise. Mark tells us that when they entered the tomb, they saw that it was open, and they were incredibly surprised because the stone was so large. And they entered the tomb, and they saw a young man sitting there, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. First thing I want to focus on is on the alarming message that he brings. This young man is told from their perspective, their eyes. We're told in Matthew that this is an angel. Hence why he's robed in white and hence why they're terrified when they see him. And what's the surprising message that, they, that he gives? Well, let's read it. Verse 6. He says, do not be alarmed, which is a common thing that angels say when you see a magnificent being in front of you. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. What's the, what's the basic message of Christianity? That he died for our sins, 
and was rose for our justification. He rose for what does that mean? For our forgiveness. That he paid for all our sins. What does it mean that Jesus rose again from the dead? Well, there's lots of different abstract concepts that we could focus on. And sometimes it's easy for us, being so far removed, to keep them as abstract concepts. That Jesus rose again from the dead by his own power. John chapter 10 verse 19 tells us. And we're told in so many other places, like Romans chapter 1 verse 4, that he was declared to be the Son of God when by God's power he rose him from the dead. So his resurrection speaks about his identity as being the God-man. His resurrection, maybe as an abstract concept, we can think of it as he has to satisfy divine justice. And he has proven that by the fact that he is alive. That he was able to fully pay for all of our sins. Once again, this is true. It's true that he has vanquished death. And that he has vanquished him who has the power over death. That Christians really don't have any reason to be alarmed if he is risen. Because we have nothing to fear. For if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? But we need to make sure that all those ideas are connected to reality. To a person. See, our hope is not just that God has forgiven us for our sins in the abstract, it's that God has forgiven us and made a way for us in a person. A person died for our sins. A person rose again. A person prays for us. A person sends his Holy Spirit to us. It's the fact that he's alive that means that he's able to be our advocate. It's the fact that he's alive means that he can save sinners. Because dead men don't save anybody. That's the news. But the news that the women are given is something a little bit more specific. They're told, they're given a message to go, not tell the world, but to go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going for you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Everything happens. And the reason why they ultimately should have believed and not been surprised and should have expected the resurrection is because Jesus said so. Because all of his words come to pass. Because he's able to perform miracles, a sign that he is an authentic prophet and his prophethood speaks about his own self, his identity. That's the reason why we should believe, by the way. You know... We're told that it happened. It really did happen in history. But history is full of unrepeatable acts. None of it can be repeated. True history. Ultimately, why we're told to believe... ...is because we're told every moment of history happens according to the scriptures. That everything that just happened, happened just as Jesus had said. That's a little condemnation to them. We'll see it gets a little bit worse for them. But don't miss 
that surprising little detail about his message, that they were to go tell his disciples and Peter. Why? Because it's the disciples who betrayed him. It's the disciples who thought themselves strong but found themselves weak. Who were faithless to their Messiah. Faithless to the God they love. Peter, more than anyone, denied the Lord three times over and over and over again. You know, part of the message that he's giving, at least to these women, these women, by the way, are being exalted to be like apostles of apostles, sent out by this angel to declare the good news of the resurrection to the apostles who should be there, who should have expected all this to happen. Which shows you how God values women, despite the cultural values. But God also, maybe to our surprise, forgives and is patient with us. You know, when we sin, we don't surprise God. When Jesus died for our sins, he died for people he knew would sin against him. He knew would betray him. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's mercy and patience with us that brings us to salvation. It's the goodness of God here that's demonstrated the message that they were to give. But then we have one last thing. We have a rather surprising response. Verse 8. And they went out from the angel. They fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to nobody, or here in English, they said nothing to no anyone, for they were afraid. You know, when reading through this, this, this was something I was, it was kind of a struggle to reconcile, especially looking at the Gospel of Matthew, because the Gospel of Matthew says that they ran away with joy and fear. But that's not really the tone that we're left here. We're told that he, they left with fear. There's multiple different kinds of fear. And we've seen this fear before throughout the Gospel of Mark. This fear that he's speaking of here always comes as a response that man has when they see God's power. When they see that God is in their midst in the boat. When they see that Jesus was able to cast out a legion of demons, killing a thousand pigs. It's the people who, when they realize who Jesus is, fear him and ask him to leave. It's the disciples who feared him as they saw a man who just predicted his death walk in front of them, walking to the death that he knew he was going to die. It's the fear that comes with recognizing God's power. You see, there's a couple of different reasons why there are secret disciples. Just think about why do you not speak up at work? Well, it could be that you are kind of ashamed of the evidence for it. That you are really not convinced yourself of the reality of the resurrection. 
that really you don't want to believe in old wives' tale either. Unlike the women, we need to look at the evidence that God has given us in his word to increase our confidence if that's our problem. But there's another reason why we can often remain silent. They left, I think here, honoring the angel's message. They went with joy and fear to proclaim to the disciples the message that they were given. That Jesus had risen from the dead and that he was, they were to meet him in Galilee, just as he said, and just as Jesus predicted, he would reconcile with them. He would bring them to himself. He would be the shepherd who shepherds these sheep. But there's another reason why we often are afraid and don't speak up. There's so many times where we're tempted to remain silent and just say nothing at all. There's a fear that grips us, a fear of others, a fear of not being convinced, a fear of not having all the answers. A fear here that leads to disobedience. It's almost like Mark is presenting us and showing us a picture. And he's going to get in more of this next time when we look at the doubts that was rife throughout the disciples. But we are being beckoned here. To not be gripped by fear. Not be afraid of what people might do to us, if we are convinced of the reality of the resurrection, we won't be afraid. You know, we've went through the Gospel of Mark for a long time now. God has been pretty patient with us, hasn't he? We're all still here. We're all still breathing. He's given us a long time to consider the record let me ask you, have you responded to the offer yet? I want to say that there's, Robert Bolton spoke of the Puritan churches and the way that the gospel came out to the people. He said, Jesus Christ is most freely offered and without exception to every person, every Sabbath, every sermon. Did you hear that? He noticed among the churches, he said, amongst our churches, Jesus Christ is offered most freely, without exception, to every person, every Sabbath, every sermon. Every Sunday, when we hear God's word, we hear his call to our lives. Every Sunday, when we read the historical, reliable record of the word of God to us, we ought to be convinced of its truth. We ought to see the marks of trustworthiness in it. And it should make us see how shallow all our true fears are. How little our reputation should really be worth to us at work. And be willing to offer the only gospel to people that can save people. That the risen Lord Jesus can be called out that you can call out to God for mercy in Christ because he is living. He is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. If you have not done that yet, 
Now's the time. Not later. If you're feeling conviction of sin, now's the time to be bold. Not to keep it to yourself. Now's the time to call out for God's mercy. To ask for his forgiveness that only the risen Christ can offer us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've shown us the shocking reality that everything, even the worst of things like Jesus' death on the cross, happened according to your plan. That you declared Jesus the Son of God. That you have offered and made a way of salvation to us. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who's not a secret disciple, but rather a secret unbeliever. Lord, may you convict them of their sin. Lord, and if they're convicted of sin, may they call out to you for mercy. And Lord, we're so thankful that to all who call out to you, you do not push them aside. You forgive all those who cry out for mercy in Christ Jesus. I just pray that they would and that you would cause them to reach out. Move in their hearts now and save them. It's in Jesus Christ's name that I pray, that we pray. Amen.